Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. The thing that really irritates you is all these people that are talking about tort reform and how that's going to make things fair for business. Well, they leave out of the equation what makes things fair for the people bad businesses injure. I'm all for the idea of making, making Georgia a good place for safe business. But safe is the key word that they leave out of their tort reform. I mean, it ought not to be a good place for bad business. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, this is Steve Lowry here with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm in, I'm in Savannah today, back, back in my old turf. <laughs> I know, I know. We're uh, we're even though we're not in the same place, uh, we're in the same city, and uh, and I was you know noticing that you know even though we're in technically fall, it's still uh, really hot outside. <laughs> it's really hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I want to go ahead and introduce our uh, guest today because I'm really excited that we have gotten Bill to come onto the show. Our guest is Bill Stone, a uh, partner at the Stone Law Group, and you can look up Bill at stonelaw.com. Uh, and Bill, just to give a little bit of background on you, um, Bill is a graduate of uh, University of Georgia undergrad uh, and University of Georgia Law School, so that makes him a double dog. And then what I noticed, uh, what I thought was interesting, Bill, is you also studied at the Netherlands Institute of Industrial Economics. So uh, we'll have to talk a little bit about, uh, about how the Netherlands was. Um, and then, uh, so if anybody, any of our listeners don't know Bill, Bill is a fantastic trial lawyer, uh, has had uh, multiple uh, verdicts in the uh, um, seven and eight figures on uh, very difficult cases and uh, with some complex theories. And Bill is excellent at taking uh, what, what I would call complex uh, uh, cases and simplifying them so that he can tell the story to the jury. And one of the cases we're going to talk about today is, is one of those. Uh, but Bill has been, uh, has won a number of awards. He's been uh, given the Traditions of Excellence Award by the State Bar of Georgia. Uh, he's, he was named in 2014 as the uh, Best Lawyer of the Year for 2013 uh, by the Best Lawyers of Atlanta. He's al always included in the Super Lawyers and has been included in the Ger Georgia Verdicts Hall of Fame for his case of Foster versus Landstar, which not only uh, was, a, was a tremendous verdict at $41 million, but uh, also had an award of $14 million in attorney's fees. Uh, Bill is also a uh, past president of the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association uh, and has um, lectured and uh, written numerous articles on all uh, areas of the law. And, uh, and Bill, I just really uh, am glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Well, Bill, I, I told you right before that I wanted to talk a little bit about something that's going on in Georgia, and it's, it's something that we're going to have to deal with. And I know that our listeners who aren't in the state uh, probably deal with this too, but um, uh, lately there has been a couple of groups going around um, giving presentations to our Georgia legislate, legislatures, legislators. Uh, uh, one is the Americans for Tort Reform and the Chamber of Commerce, and essentially what they do in this is try and make it sound like even though Georgia has been ranked as the number one place to do business, that somehow uh, you know the cases that get tried here and worked on so hard here are causing it uh, causing problems for business in Georgia 
And one thing that really sort of irked me, and, I, and I, I, I'm sure it did you too, Bill, is that they give this presentation and they, they put up these cases and they give you know, a one-line explanation of it in the way that may, makes it sound most negative. Uh, and then say that, you know, and the jury awarded, uh, you know, $46 million or $40 million or whatever it is to make it sound like the juries are out of control. Uh, I know that they, you know, for our firm personally, they put two of our verdicts up there uh, and, um, and obviously have misrepresented the facts on those. And I hope that our legislators will take the time to learn about the actual facts behind those cases where uh, 12 people having, uh, you know, uh, independent people uh, listened to the evidence, listened to all the evidence, and, and decided what the correct awards were. Um, and uh, and I just wanted to let our listeners know that uh, that this is something that's happening in Georgia right now. It's happening, I'm sure, in other places too. Uh, but it's an it's an attack on you know our um, our civil trial system. It's attack on our citizens' rights, and it's an attack on our constitutional rights. And, um, and I hope uh, anyone who listens to this show, and, and one of the purposes of this show that when Navan and I put it together is so that we could talk about uh, one case at a time and talk about what really are the facts behind it and how hard uh, you know, these cases are to win and, and, um, and how much work and time and preparation goes into um, um, winning a case like that. And there's there is no such thing as a, uh, at least in Georgia, I can say for sure, there's no such thing as an out of control jury that just, uh, you know, uh, does things at a whim. It, the, these cases are, are very difficult to win and take a lot of time and effort. Steve, Treview is, um, is the case we're going to talk about today is one of those cases that made the list with this yeah. committee and uh, uh, it, it's got some sort of interesting background about that because to begin with, uh, when they appealed it, they never questioned the size of the verdict. Nobody ever challenged the verdict as not being supported by the evidence or being excessive. Okay, so now right. they're saying it's excessive, and the people that are going to wind up having to pay it never said that. Right. Okay, so that's one thing. Second thing is that uh, the economic losses, medical expenses, and lost earning capacity were stipulated. Right. And I, that's one thing we're going to talk about here. I saw that stipulation in here where the, the defense stipulated to a little bit more than $9 million uh, almost, in, in future economic $10. loss. Go ahead. Sorry. I said almost $10 million. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the award for Ms. Trebue was two times the specials for right. her. And then the award for her husband was $18 million for the destruction of his marriage. Exactly. And, and, you know, and I thought, and, we, and we're going to talk about this in, in more detail, but I thought one of the things that was, you know, really just sort of tells the story of how much this affected the family is in, in your opening statement, you had a photo of the Trebues before this happened and, and what a beautiful woman Shannon Trebue was. Uh, and then you had a picture of them afterwards and you could just tell uh, just from the, that photo alone, how much of a, a, an effect this had had, not only on her, but on her family, and, um, and just had completely uh, changed and taken away her, her life, uh, you know, as she knew it. So let's talk a, bit, a little bit about, uh, about Trebu. So the name of the case 
is uh, Shannon Trebu versus Atlanta Women's Specialist and Stanley Angus, MD. And there's more names in there. I'm cutting it short. But uh, the case uh, in, was on behalf of Shannon Trebu and Keith Trebu, her husband. Uh, the total award uh, for the case for Shannon Trebu was uh, $27,822,777.12. And for Keith Trebu, for his loss of consortium claim, uh, was $18 million for a total verdict of $45,822,777.12. And this case uh, basically involved uh, Shannon was pregnant with their second child, uh, and she had developed uh, hypertension and, and preeclampsia um, about three weeks before the birth. Um, she went into the hospital because of the hypertension to be induced for labor, um, and the uh, in induction failed. And so on the next day, they decided to do a C-section. Uh, and the C-section, from what I can tell, Bill, um, when, uh, there were really no problems with that. Jada, their daughter, was born with no complications. Uh, but after that... Um, Today is a very lively, cute, young little girl. That's yeah, a, yeah. Now, so... Uh, uh, she's fine. Yeah, and, and so after the birth of Jada, um, the, uh, Shannon's uh, blood pressure stayed very high uh, and, and was very erratic. Um, and as the days went on, it, it basically, you know, for the next three days, um, her blood pressure not only stayed, was high, but continued to get higher. Uh, she then started showing signs of shortness of breath and, um, and had a low oxygen saturation showing that uh, she was having problems uh, getting oxygen into her blood. Uh, and then, and, and what I thought you did a, just an excellent job of, and I want to talk about more in your opening, was talking about this, the doctor's failure to watch the um, intake and outputs of fluids that, um, that she was having. And, and it basically showed that the doctor who was caring for her on the 24th, even though her kidneys were not functioning like they should, she wasn't have producing urine like she was supposed to, kept giving her uh, more and more fluids uh, and, and basically made this tremendous imbalance between uh, or you know how much fluid she had in her system uh, so that it basically overloaded her body and on the 25th of August of 2009, she uh, collapsed and had a cardiorespiratory arrest uh, and then suffered a severe uh, brain injury, a hypoxic brain injury, uh, because she went about 10 minutes without oxygen. And uh, even though they were able to bring her back uh, or resuscitate her, her um, the effects on her were catastrophic. And uh, Shannon Trebu will uh, never be the same again. Um, but that's basically the overview of, that, of, of the case, Bill. We, we approach this like you would try a wrongful death case rather than a personal injury case because what we saw here was that, that Shannon was injured so badly that she lost the life she had and was drafted to uh, live one that she never would have chosen to live. So it was really the full value of her life with the addition of, 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 of mental anguish and pain and suffering along with it because just because she is confined to a wheelchair most of the time and inactive doesn't mean that she's not aware of what's going on around her and what she's missing out. Right. Right. 
And and one of the things, I mean, as far as like how much this affected her, you made the point in your in your opening that her uh, that Jada, her six year old, uh, functioned at a higher level than she did. Um, and um, and you know what I what sort of struck me about this uh, about your opening statement, Bill, uh, was um, you know this w- to look at this and to look what she went through, you know, while she was in the hospital for about uh, you know five days. Uh, you know, could be seen as very complex medicine, and, I'm, and it is complex medicine, but you, you were able to uh, tell it in a way that really uh, simplified the issues and, and, really, and really brought it down, you know, understandable for the jury, which is always so important to do, especially in cases like this. Well, there, there were two primary medical issues. The first was getting control of her blood pressure because they were what's called labile blood pressures, meaning they peaked and troughed on a very erratic basis, but it was very strong differentials between the low blood pressure and the high blood pressure, uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure. So it, it caused the stretching of vessels and the vessels just don't completely heal. When they do that, they develop cracks in them. So they leak fluid and that's part of what caused pulmonary edema in this case. But right. We had to teach a class uh, with a Harvard obstetrician professor uh, about the management of blood pressure during pregnancy and what you need to do to get this under control and and how simple it really is if you just put your mind to it and and stay there with your patient and and deal with it rather than going off to do something else and leaving the nurses who don't really know how to deal with it uh, to get it under control. And the second thing was to show the jury exactly what the after effects of this blood pressure problem were, which is pulmonary edema. And it was just this this huge fluid overload. By the time she had her cardiopulmonary arrest, she had something on the order of about 12 and a half liters of fluid on board. And um, that's like, you know, two and a half times more than you're supposed to have. Uh, So it, it, well, actually three and a half times more than you're supposed to have. So, it, it's a lot of fluid. So we had an interesting little demonstration at, at the beginning and opening statement that we put together during our focus groups in the case to see how it worked, and it worked real well. We brought in a flat of water in liter bottles and a gallon bucket that was translucent blue gallon bucket and stuck it in a translucent white uh, uh, gallon tub where the bucket, the top of the bucket would stick up over the uh, top of the little tub, but we had to catch the water somehow so it wouldn't spill out all over the courtroom floor because they would have gotten a little upset with us about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> so we we're trying to be neat about the whole thing. So we hid it away real well where nobody even saw it happen. <laughs> brought it out, and, and we were doing it before defense counsel even figured out what was going on. And, <laughs> and, and so what I'm saying is this is a real simple way for you to understand this. We're going to take this gallon bucket, which is about a liter, we'll, maybe a little bit more than a liter. We're going to fill it up with these liter bottles. And this is how much you normally would hold in your blood vessels and everything with no problem. And then we're going to start adding to it, just like they did with her in the hospital. So what happens is the fluid obviously overflows the top of the bucket. And it starts being caught in that translucent white bucket, which we told them was the third spaces, the interstitial spaces in the body. And when it gets to be to the, to the point where you, you filled all those up, it's got to go somewhere, and the lungs are where it goes because that's where the room is. Right. 
So what you have is essentially an artificially induced pneumonia uh, by overloading someone with fluid, and it's like you're trying to drown you know, from, from inside. And, and the, the problem this causes the heart is you've got this fluid level that needs to be moved around the system, and the heart's having to pump harder for longer to keep it moving, and it wears itself out. And on top of that, you've got the blood pressure problem that's keeping uh, high blood pressure shuts down the kidneys. Right. It constricts the, uh, the blood vessels and it uh, shuts down the kidneys so they're not functioning and making urine like they're supposed to. So whatever you're taking in is not matched by what's going out. You have what's called fluid imbalance. And the way you monitor fluid imbalance is you do what's called strict I's and O's or in, intake and output so that you measure very accurately what the intake is and what the output is every hour. Well, the nurses weren't doing a real good job of that, and we had already settled with Northside Hospital before we tried this case. Right. So, you know, the actual recovery is more than the $46 million, but it's some of it was from the hospital too. So anyway, uh, that was sort of the, the stage being set with opening statement. Uh, and. You know, one of the other things we do all the time is I have this little entree into the opening statement. I, I say something to the effect that, uh, you know, I'm a lawyer, and I know a lot of y'all don't like lawyers, but, uh, you know, I am proud to be a lawyer because lawyers are officers of the court, and our only function here is to help you find the truth and do justice between these two parties that can't figure it out themselves. And but you're the ones that are here because you got a jury summons and it's a big inconvenience to you. So we owe you a duty not to make your job take one bit longer or one or be one bit harder than it absolutely has to be. So if we do or say anything on this side of the room that makes your job one bit harder or take one bit longer, I want you to hold it against Shannon Trebu and her husband because we're her lawyers. We speak for them and they're responsible for whatever we say and do. But just like, we're lawyers and we're responsible to you for that. My friends over here on the other table, they're lawyers just like we are and they have the same responsibility to you that we do. So I want you to treat them the same way that I want you to treat us. If they do or say one thing that makes your uh, job take longer or, or make it any harder than it should be, keeps you away from your family and your friends and your work and whatever it is you do when you don't have a jury summons, uh, you know, you should hold it against these doctors over here because they're the doctor's lawyers and they speak for them and the doctors are equally responsible for them just like our clients are responsible for us. And I know my good friend over here will agree with me when about this when it gets to be his turn. Right. Now, what you have now done is, is you have set somebody up with an impossible task because in 40-something years of doing this work, um, I have found out that they can't resist the temptation to do something to cloud the issue or make it right, more right. figure out what the truth is. And so you're not running any risk when you ask them to uh, uh, agree with you on that concept because, uh, first of all, if they don't agree with you, that's bad. And if they do agree with you, then they've got to hold to it. And if they don't say anything about it, that's equally bad. So you can't lose. Right, right. But you've got the table set now for a contrast between the people that are representing ordinary human beings and folks that are representing insurance companies. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? 
really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Well, and I, I like that too because I mean, even though it's a it's a gutsy call, but I like it because um, you know I mean I, we always talk about when we try a case. I mean, plaintiffs lawyers can't go into a case and make mistakes uh, because we have to win twelve jurors. Uh, defense lawyers, and, and you know, I've got a lot of friends on the defense side, including the lawyer that tried this case against you. Uh, you know, they they will you know sometimes start, try and throw stuff up against the wall to see what sticks because all they really have to do is convince one juror. Uh, versus 12 to, to side with them and then they can either hang the jury or hope that that juror brings down the whole jury. So um, I like I like giving them sort of that burden uh, that they've got to play the game or not, I shouldn't call it a game but but try the case fair uh, like you're planning well, on doing. The next thing you have to do though after you've, you've taken this step is you have to be very mindful of what they are doing and call them out on it every time they do it. Right, right. And so what happened in opening statement after the concept was agreed to was uh, defense counsel put up a slide on his PowerPoint that had a whole bunch of redactions on it. It was a policy of the hospital for the administration of labetalol, which is an antihypertensive. And it said at the top up there that the standard of, it didn't say standard of care. It says the purpose of this policy is to assure that the patient's systolic blood pressure does not get above 170. Well, our expert was going to testify the standard of care is to keep it below 160. So what he was trying to do was to tell the jury that that was the standard of care and our guy was wrong. Okay. So you can't call him out right in the middle of his open statement. That's too soon. It looks like you're just being a jerk about it and, and all that. So I'll wait till I get my Harvard <laughs> professor up on the witness stand and, and after he's told them everything he's going to tell them about it, and I ask him if he's familiar with his policy. And he said, yeah, I looked at it. And I said, uh, it's been said here in the courtroom that this represents the standard of care, does it? He says, no. I said, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, the standard of care is not what one hospital does. It's what hospitals generally all over the country do. Right. So it doesn't matter what this hospital does or says about it or anything like that. I said, well, you know, it was shown to the jury in a redacted format, so they didn't get to see it all. So let's look at some of the things that are in the policy here that weren't shown. And the first thing I want to call your attention to is the disclaimer at the bottom of the policy and read it to us please it says well this policy is not intended to be a statement of the standard of care <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh so, so zap you know you've already told them i'm not going to do anything to trick you and if i do hold it against me and all like that and the first thing i you know bring up right here is something he showed him an opening statement 
and he got zapped with it. But you got to keep oh. on doing that as you go, you know. And uh, you don't have to be ugly about it, but it's just like a contrast. We're going to try to tell you the truth, and they're going to just try to play with you. Right. And, yeah. Right. Well, and how how powerful because we talk about that. Um, on these episodes all the time about the credibility with the jury and how you can't afford to lose it. And so for you to be able to show, um, you know, early on that something was omitted, something essential was omitted from a document that they were shown, you know, right off the bat, that just has to set the tone for them. Well, my question is why would you ever stand up in front of a jury and show them a redacted document if you just didn't have to redact something out of it because of privilege reasons or something like that. Why in the world would you include that in your opening statement if you weren't trying to mislead them? You know? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. You know, we had this uh, case years ago. I tried up uh, in New Jersey that maybe someday we'll talk about on the show, but the defense had objected to all these policies and documents going in because it had other stuff on there. So they ended up putting in highly redacted documents and the way that it came across to the jury was that just the, the defense was just trying to cover up a bunch of stuff, you know I mean? Cause there's all this black on the, on the, uh, on the documents and the jury sitting there wondering about, you know, what's behind, what are they not showing us? Well, I, I've always likened that to taking privilege claims and all that. It's, it's kind of like if you come home at five o'clock in the morning and your wife's standing there and ask you, where have you been? And you say, I'm not going to tell you. That's probably about the worst answer. You can. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's far worse than anything you were doing or could have been thinking about doing. Yes. <laughs> it never goes away. So. <laughs> um. Well, Bill, I wanted to go back for one second to this uh, to this demonstration you did with the jury because I, I really want to make sure our listeners understand it because you know this case when you talk about the fact that the the inputs and the or the uh, uh, intake and outputs were were off and that she had you know too much fluid you know that can be hard for someone to understand about how that really affects the body but I just thought you know I was I was imagining you uh, when I was reading your opening. Uh, you know, pulling this thing out and then filling up the filling it up and just thinking about how effective that is that, you know, you're sitting there pouring the water in there and it starts to overflow. And now the jury really understands when, yeah, when the body gets too much uh, fluid in it, it's got, it's got to go somewhere. And so it starts going into the other tissue and that's what really causes all the problems. Well, see, yeah. on, the, on the other side of the table, you've got the flat of water in liter bottles. Okay. And so they can see from, for themselves what the volume of that fluid is by how many liter bottles you've tossed on the floor. Okay? Right, right. So it's a whole bunch of fluid and all that. And if anybody's really interested in seeing it, the, the whole trial was videoed by Courtroom Video Network. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's available on Courtroom Video Network from start to finish. And the, the uh, uh, little demonstration with the fluid is kind of cool, really. Uh, oh. I want to see that because I especially want to see how you basically just brought it out from its hiding place and just started working with it before anybody knew what was happening. Right. Well, we, we got there first and we, we hit it all out real good before we. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, well, Bill, talk about a little bit. I mean, there's a number of things I want to ask you about, but talk a little bit about how the defense approached this case and then how you were able to, uh, you know, show the jury that, I mean, it's, it, you know, the way you laid it out in opening, the fact that they weren't checking the intakes and outputs and that they were getting so severely off balance sound like a pretty straightforward case, but uh, you know, medical malpractice cases never are. Uh, so how did, how did they approach it from a defense and how were you able to overcome that? Okay. 
this may take a few minutes. But, <laughs> okay. Uh, one thing that caused me the most uh, concern and angst about this trial was I never could figure out exactly what the defense was going to be because yeah. it just looked so straightforward and obvious. I kept racking my brain thinking, you know, you got to be missing something somewhere because they obviously are not, not too interested in playing with you because uh, we had demanded on an offer of, offer of judgment uh, $2 million to settle the case. Oh, wow. And then they just walked away from it and blew it off without even giving us a response. So, you know, we, we've coming back off appeal pretty soon now, and hopefully we're going we're to be in a position of the judge having to award something in the neighborhood of $12 million in attorney's fees on top of what we got. So uh, that's – but anyway, to answer your question, they had all these experts, and none of them were really consistent about what was going on. So all they were going to say about the doctor and or the two doctors and their standard of care was that uh, uh, they didn't violate the standard of care. But what what happened was when this woman began getting hypoxic, and they noticed that there was this pulmonary uh, edema building up and everything, they were going to send her down to x-ray to uh, have a chest x-ray done. And at, at that point in time, uh, they should have realized that she was in such bad shape she didn't need to be sent down there without being monitored because you have to disconnect her from all the monitors. And she was in basically an ICU type of setting up, up where she was. And they just disconnected her and sent her down there. But before they got around to doing that, the doctor had uh, – uh, she reported a, a systolic blood pressure of 207, wow. which is extremely high. And so the doctor comes at that point. That's the first time that afternoon he actually came and looked at her. And uh, uh, so he sees her and he orders uh, a small injection of a drug called hydralazine, which is a very powerful antihypertensive. They've been given her oral labetalol, which is a little bit different. But so... This brings her blood pressure down to about 160. But labetalol's got kind of a screwed up half-life, and you can't just give it and walk away and expect everything to be all right. You've got to closely monitor the patient, and you may need to give a little bit more if the, if, if the blood pressure starts going back up. You give a little more. If, it, if uh, it doesn't start going back up, you just keep there watching, wait, and you want to keep the blood pressure stable for about four hours. Well, instead of staying with her to watch her and to, to do what he needed to do, uh, Dr. Angus decides that he's got another baby he's got to deliver, so he leaves her and goes off and delivers her another baby. And she's transported down to the radiology department uh, by a transporter, uh, a, a guy that just wheels wheelchairs around, and he has no medical training or anything. It's after five o'clock in the afternoon, so there's no medical people down around radiology. So she's not monitored during this whole period of time, so nobody could really tell us what was going on with her while she was being transported and while she was in radiology. And that was kind of the unraveling of uh, uh, the, the maternal fetal medicine specialists that were testifying against us, because they really didn't have any idea about what caused her code. What went wrong? What caused it? It was what I call the anything but defense. Anything but what you guys say was it. Right. Whatever it was, it was anything, something different than what you guys are saying. So they couldn't come up with an answer to the question, and they couldn't ever say anything about standard of care, except that the doctor didn't 
violate the standard of care. And she was transported to radiology in stable condition. We had everything graphed out on an Excel spreadsheet where it made this nice chart and stable, you know, it's supposed to be like within the two lines. You just, you just got a range that it stays in and everything's cool. And what we have is this erratic thing, just jumping up here and coming down, jumping up here and coming down. And what they had was a chart where it, they, they cut it off a little quick before it got all the way to the bottom, but it had their green line for blood pressure just uh, falling off the edge of the chart. So that led to a great argument. So even they knew she was off the chart, you know, right, <laughs> their right. own demonstration shows she's off the chart. So <laughs> they were going to make this into a causation defense because that's all they right. really did. Okay. And they had a guy named Cooper from UAB Birmingham to come over and, and Cooper he was the guy that had to be destroyed because he was the only one that was going to talk about it. Uh, and they do as they do all the time. They come to me and they say, well, we got this expert up out of town and he uh, has to has a conflict next week and he really can't be held over to next week and everything. Will you work with us and let us put him up out of turn in your case? Right. Okay. Well, you know, I recommend that you always think about that if uh, they want to do it because it provides some opportunities that you might not otherwise get because we had a great witness we could sandwich him in in front of that was going to kill it. We had a, a, a pathologist medical examiner from Louisville uh, named George Nichols. He was former director of the Kentucky Crime Lab. He had started it and, and all that. He's just a great witness. And so Dr. Cooper he, he did a nice dog and pony show in his uh, uh, direct examination. And so I asked him in his cross examination, uh, you know, doctor, uh, you know, I've never met, right? He said, yeah. I said, well, uh, doctor, do you charge twice as much to review the records to find out uh, what you're going to, what opinions you're going to testify about as you do to come to court? Well, that's backwards. Do you, do you charge, uh, your clients right here uh, twice as much to testify about your opinions as you do to review the records to decide what they're going to be. And he says, no, no, I don't do that. So he had said he did that in his deposition. So we played his videotape deposition right after that. <laughs> and there he goes saying it, you know, so now you got him lying about something that really doesn't matter. Right. I mean, you know, who do, they all do that. I mean, there's no, no, no real big deal in it, but I mean, a guy that will lie to you about, something that's not important will surely lie to you about something that is important. Right. So, so that's point number one. Well, he was all over the map. His, his whole theory of the case was this was a pulmonary embolus, a big blood clot that had clotted off the uh, pulmonary artery at the branch and completely obstructed blood flow to the lungs. And that's what caused her to have a cardiopulmonary arrest. But there was no evidence in the medical record of a, of a pulmonary embolus because they did a CAT scan after the code and it didn't show any, any residue of an embolus or anything like that. So his opinion was that, well, when they did CPR, they broke it up into such small clots that it went diffusely throughout the lungs and they couldn't see it and all that. So, and you know, then I asked him, what would you have done if uh, uh, you thought she had a blood clot like that? What would be the treatment? He said, well, you give her heparin. Okay. Well, do you see where they, Gave her any heparin? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, when? Show me. So he said we'd have to look at the records. So I haul him off this, this three-foot-tall stack of medical records. I said, well, 
take your time, you know, show us. And so he comes up with uh, the first time he could see that heparin is used is uh, uh, a month after the code's over. Oh my God. You know, so, so it has nothing to do with any treatment or anything. So then I ask him, well, uh, you know, how much heparin was used there? He says 50 units. I said, well, how much would a therapeutic dose be? And he says, well, I'm not real sure. I said, well, you are the author of the study guide for Cecil's textbook of medicine, aren't you? He said, yeah. I said, well, is that a good book to look at? He said, yeah, it's the best. I said, well, you think we can find the answer in there? He said, sure. And I said, well, I've got the last uh, 20 editions of it stuck here under my desk right here. Which one would you like to look at? <laughs> so, so we finally settled on him looking at the one that had been published uh, immediately before the incident, be the latest and greatest standard of care. So I flip it open, put it on the Elmore, and the the minimum dose of heparin for this would be five to 10,000 units, not 50. Oh my. Jeez. Oh my gosh. So I said, well, what is the name of the product that they were administering there a month after the code? He says, it's called a hip flush kit. I said, well, what is a hip flush kit? He says, well, you use it to uh, put some heparin in the, uh, uh, in, in the IV lines and all right. clean the IV lines to make sure they don't clot up. I said, so what you're talking about is a housekeeping dose, man. You're not talking about a therapeutic dose. <laughs> so I said, well, would you just agree with me? That, you know, when you say that they they should have given heparin if they thought it was a clot, and now you know that they didn't. You were just wrong about that, weren't you? Yeah, I was just wrong about it. I said, oh, so my, my next question for you is, are you trying to tell the jury that the people that saved this woman's life and resuscitated her committed medical malpractice? He said, no, I'm not saying that. And I said, well, you just told me that the standard of care was to give heparin and and they didn't do it. So obviously you're saying they committed malpractice. I said, no, 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 no. He says, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. He says, what, what you really got to admit, isn't it, doctor, that there's not a single person that was taking care of her that day. And there were some very, very serious specialists that were taking care of her. Nobody thought it was a blood clot. And that's why they didn't do what you would do if you did think it was a blood clot. You got to admit that, right? So he finally admitted that. And so by the time I got done with him, uh, you know, I said, I don't have any other questions. And uh, they didn't have any other questions. And so uh, the judge says, well, you know, you're excused and you can leave. And his last words in front of the jury, when he got up, walk off the stand, he says, good, I'm ready to get the hell out of here. <laughs> wow. I, bet, I bet he was <laughs> it was a fun trial <laughs> yeah. wow and, and that was it i mean and so we called george nichols right after we had him on the witness stand and um, i said dr nichols it's been said by the critical care pulmonologist expert on causation for the defense right here that, that this was caused by a large pulmonary embolus that broke into a gazillion little pieces and everything when the, when CPR was being done and went diffusely through the lungs. I said, do you have an opinion about whether that's true? He says, yes, I do. I said, what is it? He says, that is completely false. <laughs> I said, how do you know that? He says, well, I know that because we're here dealing with a case involving a live woman, not a dead one. Right. If it had happened the way he says it happened, she would have never made it out of the operating room. Right. 
Wow. I'm just wondering when he, when the, uh, when the doctor was leaving and said, you know, I'm glad to get the hell out of here. Uh, did you catch the jury and what they were doing? Were they, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, they were kind of snickering. <laughs> it was, cause he was, he was walking right in front of them. Right. He, he left, you know what the courtroom looks like up there in state court in Fulton County and all yeah. that. Uh, it, he was walking right parallel with them, you know, in front of them. So, uh, yeah, they, they were kind of looking at him like, yeah, I guess so. I guess you are going to get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. if, that's, if that's what he said out loud, I can only imagine what he must have. Like, you know, when you see like a, a very effective uh, cross-examination at trial and the witness looks like just a different person at, from, from right. the beginning to the end, like they look this like they've it. edged 10 years. His demeanor and his facial expressions and his, his uh, whole body posture, I mean, he was just sweating profusely. Oh. I mean, he was not enjoying himself up there at all because he was getting caught right and left with stuff. He, he, he was not prepared. He didn't know the hospital record, you know, and I guess he thought I wasn't going to know the hospital record either. So we wouldn't have this long discussion, but you know, kind of little zingers like, you know, I've got all these Cecil's textbooks under here. Pick one. You know, you just, right. Right. They all say the same now, <laughs> now was that was that whole collection of textbooks were those hidden along with where your water demonstration or we were those our, in plain we view had our, we had our finished with the water and we got it out of there okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, the little room out there where we saw all that stuff and and <laughs> a break we had moved all the textbooks in and stuck them under the table so you know, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, awesome. doesn't, it doesn't do to let the other side know in advance too much about what you're going to do because they can either avoid it or they can coach the guy through it ahead of time and everything. You just got to have a few surprises for him. And right. So, right. <laughs> I love that. Well, and I, and I, I, I like it that, uh, you know, because, you know, we get that request a lot, like you said, uh, that uh, for some reason or another, their their witness can't go the next week, so they want to put them up in your case. And so, you know, usually you don't like to let the, let the other side break up your flow, but uh, that worked out perfectly for you. Well, in that see, case. what you have to do, the way I handle it is I say, well, I will do my best to work with you but I've got my case I've got to put up and I've got the burden of proof. So I can't, you know, let you monopolize my time or anything like that. Cause I got witnesses that can't be here next week too. Right. So I'm going to have to get my people up. And if I've got time left over for you, I'll, I, I'll give it to you and let you do it, but you're going to have to take the slot I give you. Right. It's not, right. not going to be a negotiable slot. You just going to, have to take the slot I give you. So then your mind goes to work and says, what is the worst spot I can give him? <laughs> right. You know, what, what witness can I put up right behind him that absolutely kills him? And, and see, the important thing about this one was this was a Friday afternoon. Okay. He had, he had gotten through. He, he went up uh, Friday morning about 10 o'clock and he got through about lunchtime. So Friday afternoon, the, the first witness up is George Nichols. And so the first thing they hear right after lunch is, uh, none of this is true. It's all totally false, you know? Right. And so they go home over a weekend, having been told that the star witness for the defense is just coming and lied to them. And so, I mean, I'll take that. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll take the risk on that if I think I can come out ahead like that. So, uh, but you got to give it some thought. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and you know from your practice, and, you know, I follow you too, and you do a great job and fed a lot of great results, but it doesn't come 
by accident. I mean, right. all this is very well planned and you can't do this work unless you're thinking about seven steps ahead of the other side Yeah, all the time. Yeah. You know, that's why it's so stressful because you go, you got to be thinking 12 steps ahead and if you don't enjoy it, then it could really be stressful. But <laughs> right. when a good plan comes together, you have to really enjoy it because yeah. you know, it, it can be made to work if you just think it through. Uh, yeah, that had to have been a really uh, a good feeling for for you at the end of that Friday going into the weekend, knowing you ended how you did. Yeah, you always want to end the weekend on a strong note. Yeah, yeah. You know? And yeah, it, yeah. it was really even funnier than that because the one we wound up ending with, we put a damage witness up. And Keith Trebu, the husband, is just such a stand-up guy. I mean, he's been with this lady, you know, for 10 years since this accident right now he's been taking care of her the whole time and you know he he's doing what he should be doing and and that kind of thing and so one of her friends uh was testifying and she was just talking about how wonderful a guy keith was and all that uh because that was important and the, the jury understand he was a great guy and so Riles, my son, was doing his examination. So Riles asked him, he says, is, is he the kind of guy you would want your daughter to marry? <laughs> she says, no. And Riles looks at her funny. She says, he's the kind of guy I'd like to marry. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. I, I wanted to mention the fact that you're, in your economic losses that you put up, it was, which was uh, almost $10 million, $9,822,000, uh, that uh, the defense stipulated to that. And I'm just wondering, how did you get the defense to do that? Well, actually, it was their idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think they really wanted to do what, what we finally told them they had to do if they wanted to do it. They didn't want our damage witnesses, their experts, to testify. Okay. You know, they didn't want the economist to testify. They didn't want the life care planner to testify. So they just wanted to sanitize it and put the numbers up. But I, I figured out pretty quick that what they really wanted was to have us stipulate with them that, that these witnesses would testify to these things if called. 
Okay. And I wasn't interested in doing that. I'm, right. my, my deal was if there's going to be a stipulation, uh, the stipulation is going to have to be that these are the numbers that are not disputed. And if plaintiffs are entitled to a verdict, they're entitled to have these numbers written into the verdict form, which is, uh, you know, this is the way it was. They, they stipulate and agree that if the jury finds the defendants breached the standard of care and approximately caused the injuries sustained by Shannon Treview, the present day cash value of Shannon Treview's economic losses are as follows. You know, and and he even tried to, to crawfish out of it uh, at the end of time when uh, we were talking about the verdict form because I wanted a verdict form submitted with these numbers already written in there. and. And so the jury wouldn't even have to think about it, but right. this is before closing argument. So he uh, wanted to say, well, no, I, sh I should be able to argue that uh, just because we stipulated these numbers, that doesn't mean the jury's got to award them. And I'm like, judge, you know what the standard pattern charge is on stipulations, you know, it's a stipulated fact. It means it's conclusively established and can't be contradicted or opposed. And the judge looked at him and says, you know, that's right. That's what the charge says. And I said, well, they need to know what these numbers are and be told that they have to include them in their verdict. What better way than to go ahead and send them back there in the verdict form? All they got to do is check no to that question. It doesn't matter. Right. Well, uh, the judge decided he was going to do his Solomonic thing like he did because Judge Edie gave us a great trial. I mean, he was, he was a joy to try a case in front of. Uh, and he says, well, I'm not going to put the numbers on the verdict form, but I am going to send a stipulation back to the jury and tell them that they've got to take the numbers off the jury verdict, off the stipulation, and put them on the jury form exactly as they are on the stipulation if they find for the plaintiffs. So that's good enough. That's all right. I'll take that. Yeah. And so that's what happened. <clears throat> um, and so, uh, well, and it, it really helps with your, you know, in your statement and opening, how you, you bring everything out that you're going to do everything to, you know, not waste the jury's time to get sure. it to them as quick as possible. And, sure. and you've, you know, you've know, done that right away just by, you know, getting that stipulation. They don't even have to think about that. That's already been agreed to. Well, Judge E hardly had to make any rulings during the trial because every time something would come up that uh, they would object to, I would come up with some reasonable compromise that would resolve the thing and we'd move right along to the next thing. So he didn't rule on very many things. The most contentious thing that happened uh, at the end of the trial after the evidence was already over and both sides had closed, uh, they, wanted a, they, they wanted a verdict form that included the defendants, the two uh, doctors that were uh, employed by the, the practice group uh, listed on there for purposes of apportionment between them because we didn't sue one of those doctors. We, Dr. Simonson had retired from practicing medicine or just quit because she was young, but she became a high school bi biology teacher and that just wasn't going to be good optics right there. So she didn't get sued. But, uh, and fact of the matter is if Simons, if Dr. Angus had paid attention to what he should have paid attention to, he would have realized that he could have corrected the problems that she caused by just using Lasix. Right. But he didn't do it, you know, so um, it was sort of like a case of malpractice heaped on top of malpractice. But um, so that, that became an issue because she was a non-party and no non-party notice of apportionment had ever been given. And, you know, he admitted that he'd never given the notice and he admitted she was a non-party and the judge says, well, 
you know, case law says if she's a non-party and wasn't given the notice and all that, that uh, she can't be on the verdict form. So he didn't put her on the verdict form. But they came up with a different argument on the motion for new trial, and he bought into that one because he didn't really know what to do about it because it was sort of a novel argument. He he, he really think, thought, I believe, that uh, either the case would get settled if he granted a new trial on just a portion of it alone because he, he wasn't going to try the other issues. He maintained the jury verdict and the computation of damages and all that. He's just going to panel another jury to determine percentages of fault between those two doctors. And um, so he he thought that we'd go ahead and do that, and then the whole thing, if it was going to be, be appealed, could go up all at once and everything, but they wanted a certificate. And we decided not to oppose their certificate. And when they filed their appeal, we didn't oppose their application for intermediate appeal either. And but we did do this. We did uh, pay real close attention to the emails from the Court of Appeals about uh, what had happened to the, the motion that they filed for permission to appeal. And we had our notice of appeal ready to go. So the, within about a minute after that came in, our notice of appeal was filed, and we became the appellant. Right. And we got the opening and closing argument on the appeal. So – even though we didn't ask for the appeal, we, we still got the notice filed. Oh, wow. Right, right. I wouldn't have thought of that, I don't think. Well, we got a very good appellate special. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't get any Mike Terry. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah and, don't, and, I, hope, I hope Mike Terry doesn't listen or he's going he's gonna <laughs> to give me hell about that the next time I see him. <laughs> well, but, but it all worked out fine in the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals uh, came out with its with its ruling in March of this year, uh, reversing the trial judge grant of a new trial on that issue, but affirming all of his other rulings. And uh, so if, unless the Supreme Court grants uh, cert, uh, which we ought to know in about six weeks or so, uh, whether or not if, if they run kind of on the same schedule they've been running on with cases, uh, that's not a guaranteed thing, but it's, it seems reasonable to think that they'll you know, take this one in order and about the same amount of time they usually spend on these cases. So we, we think sometime probably middle to end of November, we'll hear about this one way or the other and see whether it's over with and on the appellate phase. And we go back down to Judge Edie for uh, an award of attorney's fees or we uh, do something else. Right. So, so the, yeah, I was looking at this uh, at this uh, Court of Appeals opinion. So, ba so basically, they found that the other doctor who who wasn't sued was, I mean, she was an employee of the practice, and so they were vicarious. They stipulated, they stipulated that too. Right. Okay. I mean, How are they going to apportion it then between two uh, employees? That was, a good question. that was a good question. One of the questions that the uh, the Court of Appeals raised in the um, opinion, as you saw right there, was they said they don't seem to understand exactly how they want to apportion this. Right, right. You know, they're not really clear what, what they want to do with this. But here, here's the thing. The only reason they did this is because I think at the end of the trial, they were pretty well aware that it wasn't going well. And they wanted a safety valve because, as you recall, the uh, Six Flags against Martin case had been decided in the Court of Appeals, and they had ruled that an apportionment error requires a new trial on all issues. And Martin was a case that had used a special verdict, just like we always do. Right. And so uh, the, the Supreme Court ruled in, in the Martin case about uh, a week after they filed their motion for a new trial 
that reversed the Court of Appeals decision in Martin and held that no, you don't. If there's a special verdict where the jury's made the findings, we don't revisit that. And so right. we had the special verdict that made all the findings. And so the Court of Appeals just said, you know, as Martin, Martin says, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. It's just we don't go do it all over again, so we're not going to do that. So they reversed the trial judge uh, on uh, his ruling that we had to go do it. And uh, they had some other issues that they didn't get anywhere with. I, I like that Court of Appeals opinion because it was very succinct in a way because they had three main issues, and every time they get through discussing one, uh, they'd say, we find this position has no merit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We had, we had three of those on three issues. So it was right. a good but, well, and it's also a great opinion because as you mentioned, and especially when you were trying this case, apportionment, the, the law and apportionment and how to handle that on the verdict form is still developing. We still are looking for guidance on that. And this, this opinion provides guidance in that area. It helps, it helps a good bit. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think some other things have come out now that, that help a good bit too. Uh, that, uh, it's all going to work itself out. It just takes a while to, to do that. The trouble with statutes like the apportionment statute, and that's most of this tort reform legislation when it gets passed, is that people that want it don't have a clue what it's going to do to the system when they get it. Right. And it, it, it almost uniformly winds up biting them on the backside because it doesn't work out the way they expected it to. Apportionment was supposed to take care of premises liability uh, cases where owners were getting uh, getting the damages inflicted by criminal assailants visited on them. And they had the idea that if we can just say, okay, you got a, a portion between uh, the parties that, you know, are, the jury's always going to stick the criminal and let the property owner go. Well, you know, hardly so when the property owner creates a property that is just an invitation to criminal activity right? because right. there's no security. Yeah, exactly. I mean, criminals are always going to be looking for soft targets. And if you give them a soft target, you're going to endanger everybody that, that stays at your place there. So that's why you ought to be the one taking most of the blame because you're the only one that can do anything about it. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, Bill, I want to talk about a couple other things before we let you go. Uh, one is that, so the award for, for Mr. Trebu uh, was $18 million for a loss of consortium claim. And I, I just want, I want you to talk a little bit about how you presented the loss of consortium claim and were able to, uh, uh, you know, um, present that so that the jury gave, um, you know, such a significant award. Well, first of all, they had a, they had a real good marriage. Okay. And, uh, it was just kind of like a marriage made in heaven. Uh, it, it, at least it appears that way. It, it, you know, one never knows about that kind of thing. But uh, the way they behaved towards each other out, outwardly uh, was was great. And they did a lot of things together and all that. And, and they, so much so that, that they had one child together and then Keith got a vasectomy. And they thought about it and thought about it and they decided they wanted another child. So he goes back and gets the vasectomy reversed successfully. And she, she becomes pregnant with Jada and that's the little girl that was born. that resulted in this tragedy. Okay. Uh, now what you have here is two people trying to join their lives together and you know, it's two become one. 
okay? And that's where you had to try this case. So first thing you had to do is you had to demonstrate exactly what she had lost. And the way we did that, I, I like this type of exhibit in trials, and I, I call it the want-add exhibit. Mm -hmm. Because basically, this person has gotten assigned a job for the rest of her life that she would never have applied for, but doesn't have any choice in turning it down. And you got to think of all the nasty things that have to happen to you. This your daily job every day, 24-7, 365 days a year, from now till the day you die, and you never get any rest from it. Mm -hmm. you know, what, is, what is that worth in terms of money? Okay? And so you, you first have to present what she's not going to be able to do. And in doing so, when she's not able to do it, you're visiting that job on Keith to get this stuff done, okay? Or somebody's got to do it, and it's usually going to be the spouse. So you, you keep showing how, how the injury to one spouse injures the other spouse, too, because it puts a lot of work on them that they wouldn't ordinarily have to do because you got to do twice the work now. you gotta, you got to work for the family and then, then do the work for your spouse. And, you know, he was just the kind of guy that uh, – uh, he made a really, really, really good impression. He did a real good job with his testimony and, and all that. And uh, But we we had a fairly long list of uh, things that she was going to have to do uh, and give up and everything, and we went through that. And then we started talking about Keith. You know, if you're going if you're going to believe like Keith told you that when we got married we became one person. Well, if you cut her, he bleeds, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not an injury like this to her is, is the mirror image of the injury to him. And so what they did is general damages were 18 million for her and 18 million for him. They just split baby right down the middle. Yeah. And so, uh, the jury didn't stay out very long. I mean, it looks like they stay out a long time if you look at the transcript, but, but essentially they were given the case on a Friday afternoon. They went home. I mean, they, uh, you know, elected a four person and all that, and then went home for the weekend. Monday was a federal holiday and they came back in on Tuesday. And so they started deliberations on Tuesday morning and they were done by lunchtime. So right, it, wasn't, right. it wasn't a long deliberation. Oh. Were, were you, um, were you nervous or, or hesitant about, about giving them the case on the Friday afternoon and so, sort of knowing that they'd be leaving and going home? I felt real good about it. I felt real good about it. It had ended on a real good note because every one of the defense, the, the two defendants and their expert witnesses all got killed. I mean, everyone. Right. One of them was a local Sandy Springs doctor and you know, he was just a, a smart aleck, and he just liked to think of himself as a demigod. And I'm up there showing him my, my uh, graphic chart with all the squiggly lines, uh, big, sharp peaks and troughs and everything. And I'm pointing at it with a laser, and I've got my back turned toward him, and I'm asking him a question. And he smarts off and says, are you talking to the wall? <laughs> And I turned around and looked at him. I said, excuse me, did you just ask me if I was talking to the wall? He said, or yourself or whatever. I said, actually, no, doctor. I'm asking you a question and be in your best interest to pay attention to it. 
<laughs> oh, that would have that would have made me mad. Yeah, it did make him mad. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I would have been mad if I were you. I don't well, think I would have come up with such well, a cool response. But you have to. You, you, well, it's not the first time it's ever happened. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Do this long enough. Well, and, and, well, and I think it's a perfect example of you know this this doctor comes in. He doesn't know uh, you know what he's walking into, but the jury's been living with this case for you know more than a week. They've seen. Oh, the they know what they know more about. He does. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, but see, none of none of the other doctors except Doctor Cooper were able to tell anybody what the cause of this was because you'd ask them and they say, "I don't know." Yeah. Okay. But I know what it was. It wasn't malpractice. That's the only thing I can tell you. And, you know, I can't tell you really what he should have done under standard of care, but I can tell you he didn't violate it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, these guys were not peculiarly good witnesses, but uh, every one of them got clobbered. So I wasn't worried about it at all, letting them go out on the weekend, because they didn't have anything really to think about except what we put up. Gotcha. Um, right, yeah, yeah. Well, and, uh, and and Bill, I want to also ask you. It, I think I saw that you had uh, Jada testify, and uh, you know, I'm just wondering how that went with a with a child, you know, so young, and um, and how she did. But here's what we did: we we took yeah. her deposition by videotape, and okay. she testified at trial by videotape. Uh, this was this was all going on during the school year, and it wouldn't have been a real good idea to take those kids out of school for right. two weeks at a time or something like that. So. We just made the decision to videotape the testimony of both of them and let them stay up there with their grandmother and uh, go to school. And the jury didn't mind that. It was all fine. Right. Um, but she did great. She did great. She's a cute kid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, from, uh, you know, I mean, the real sad thing is, is that she, you know, really never got to know her mom, at least not what her mom was like before she had her. Well, I mean, you go back to this want ad thing. What you have to do to do a good one of these things is you have to go over this person's life and the things that she customarily did for her family and her kids and all that kind of thing. Make this long list. We had a list of about five pages, right, of this want ad thing. So it was a it was a long list of stuff she did. She made scrapbooks. She, you know, it was all the things that she would never ever ever get to do again. You know. Mm-hmm. And this is what she's going to miss out for the rest of her life on. And, and this is taking away the enjoyment of her life. And the videotape of the day in her life was really poignant because they went out and filmed one of the girls playing soccer. And you had to get her, walk her to the car, take her wheelchair, fold it up and put it in the trunk and all that and, and do all that, get it out to get her out of, to the, where she could see, but when you got her out there, you know, there's all kinds of motion going on with everybody else, but she just sitting, just isolated and stagnant right there. And it's, it, it kind of led to uh, a question or two during the, during the examination of Keith Travey about living life on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. You know, just totally sidelined in life right here that she, it can get taken out there, but she really can't do anything like jump up and yell and scream and, you know, uh, cheer when her daughter does something well or anything like that. She just stuck sitting there waiting to be taken home. And, and that's what she goes through every day. And yeah, it's really sad because the, the TV that she watches, she watches cartoon shows like a little kid. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, and, uh, 
But the thing that really irritates you is all these people that are talking about tort reform mm-hmm. and how that's going to make things fair for business. Well, you know, they leave out of the equation what makes things fair for the people bad businesses injure. Right. Now, I'm all for the idea of making making Georgia a good place for safe business. But safe is the key word that they leave out of their tort reform right. campaign. I mean, it ought not to be a good place for bad business or for unsafe business. The unsafe exactly. ought to bear the responsibility of the harm and misery that they cause. And I'll, you know, that's what the, God made insurance companies for. You buy enough insurance, you don't have to worry about it anymore. But And, and then, you know, this is another thing about a case like this. And most of these medical malpractice cases, they insure these doctors for $2 million of coverage, 1 million for them and 1 million for their group. It ensures the fact that the doctor personally has got to be sued because that's the only way you're going to get both prongs of the policy. But an obstetrician practicing in, in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta area or in Savannah or someplace like that, if you screw up like this and you don't have but $2 million, somebody has committed serious insurance malpractice about advising you about what you need because it's going to be a lot more than this. Right. You know, if you lose, it's going to be a lot more than this. So uh, you need to buy coverage that's commits for what your loss is going to be rather than try to get out on cheap. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking about this, you know, when they talk, you know, talk about these cases and try and uh, make it sound like there's you know, something is happening that's either outrageous or excessive. Uh, I mean, this this happened to uh, sh- to Shannon uh, back in August of 2009. Right. And uh, and you tried this in February of 2017. So you're talking, you know, uh, what uh, seven and a half years later. And then we're sitting here, uh, you know, in 2019, and and this case is still unresolved. So, uh, I mean, it's unresolved for several more years. Right. So, I mean, you know, it 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 it's not like, uh, I mean, you know, this is tremendous work, and it, and like you said, you know, you gave them the opportunity to get this case resolved for, you know, what was much less than the value of the case, um, well, yeah. and yeah. and they chose not to. Well, they not only chose not to, they didn't even respond to it. Right. It does not to even answer it, you know? And so that was a rejection of it. But, uh, you know, they've got other tools they could have used if, if they thought it was an excessive verdict or something like that. They could have asked in the motion for new trial, they could have asked for a remediator, but they didn't do it. Right. I don't think the judge would have given them one because when you, when you look at what they awarded Shannon after the stipulation of the economic losses, uh, it was, you know, about two times economic losses. Right. Right. You know, so the whole verdict for her was about three times economic losses. So, I mean, nobody really seriously make the argument that that's out of line. I mean, and nobody would, would really want to trade places with her. Right. All Absolutely. the money in the world would make you want to trade places with her. Uh, and, uh, you know. Well, Bill, this has been uh, just great talking to you and, and uh, tremendous work for you and your firm. And I, I you know, I should have mentioned that, uh, you know, I think one of the joys that you have in practicing is that you get to practice with your with two of your sons, Riles and James, and uh, and that they helped to try this case. And uh, and obviously, this is a, a great work for, for you and everybody there. 
it was it was a great time for everybody because we got a, a new member of our firm, Mike Regis. So he right. was then he came on board and he he helped with it too. And uh, so, you know, matter of fact, uh, he did the cross examination of Dr. Davis, one of the maternal fetal medicine specialists, and did a really good job with it. Um, and uh, you know, my my two boys that are practicing, they're the fifth generation lawyers in my family. Right. So, right. It's uh, been a long, long haul, but uh, uh, they do a good job, and we all we all like helping people. Right, right, exactly. Well, well, Bill, like I said, this has been uh, just a, a, a great honor speaking to you. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't talked about about the Trebu versus Atlanta Williams specialist that you want to make sure our listeners know about? I can't really think of anything. I mean, it's you know the opinions published. It's a uh, if you got apportionment issues in cases or whatever, it'd be a good read for you because it, I think it does clarify quite a number of things and it helps out. Uh, uh, I guess if I had one more thing to say, I'd have to say uh, uh, you need to pay attention to the pretrial order right. in cases because one of the things that saved us in, on the apportionment issue was uh, they, they did not uh, – say anything about this apportionment issue in the pretrial order. And so that invoked a, a waiver argument because if it's not in the pretrial order, it's not the case. Right. Yep. And yep. so, um, you know, that's, they just thought they were going to throw that out there as a last minute Hail Mary because they needed to have something they could try to get a new trial on all issues on. And if right. they could get that error uh, uh, called on appeal or they could get a new trial on all issues. And, and once it became apparent that wasn't going to happen, they, they'd already committed to take the appeal route. And so bad part about it for them is that uh, the uh, uh, interest on the judgment was running at about $8,500 a day right. on appeal. So, so the, uh, at, at the time, the, the, uh, case came out of the court of appeals the total value of the case was uh something on the order of uh, 55 million dollars right it yeah. cost themselves about ten thousand i mean ten million more dollars by appealing it yes exactly uh, and you know uh it, it's kind of interesting that you you're going to think that uh in the the collection action in this thing against the insurance company how the insurance company is going to try to sell this to the jury because uh, they give up an opportunity to settle the thing for $2 million. And then they get into trial and they stipulate that the amount of economic losses is right. five yeah. times the amount of the guy's coverage. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's taking care of your insurer real good. I want me to have yeah. all that insurance company to help me. You know? Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're in good hands with all state. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Bill. Well, this has been a, just a, a great interview and we really appreciate your time. And um, I just want to remind our listeners that we've been talking to Bill Stone of the Stone Law Group. Uh, and I, I should have mentioned at the beginning, Bill's got offices in Atlanta. Blakely in Rome, Georgia, and you can look up Bill at stonelaw.com. Uh, and we've been talking about uh, Trebu versus Atlanta Women's Specialists and, and Stanley Angus MD. And the total amount of the verdict was $45,822,777.12. Thank you so much for your time, Bill. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bill. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, 
Have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.